Welcome to the Spark Weekly. I'm Scott Lamar. Coming up on this week's program, honeybees have been dying by the millions over the last 15 years. But beekeepers may be the key to saving them. Also on the program, a memoir by a woman who realizes she's in love with her best friend and had been for 20 years. In the year that ended April 1st, almost half of all honeybee colonies in the U.S. didn't survive. That was the second highest death rate on record. Honeybees are crucial to the food supply, pollinating more than 100 crops we eat, including nuts, vegetables, berries, citrus, and melons. Scientists said a combination of parasites, pesticides, starvation, and climate change keep causing large die-offs. Beekeepers have taken on the role of trying to stabilize the honeybee population. Have they, and can they be successful? In what ways? With us today on The Spark is Gary Carnes, president of the Capital Area Beekeepers Association and an eighth-generation beekeeper. Gary Carnes, welcome to the program. Well, thank you, Scott. Eighth-generation. you got to tell me a little bit about that. Uh, well, my mother's family were farmers, and they were large orchard and dairymen. And I can go back to Dwight Eisenhower's great-grandfather in my family with honeybees. Well, it's not really known, but when Dwight's grandfather... And father left Elizabethville, Pennsylvania, left over 125 co- colonies of honeybees behind. And my mother's family can continue that because they were all of the, you know, the farming, vegetables, and dairy industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so, I mean, when you say eight generations, if we look at that in years, what, what are we looking at years-wise? Oh, we're talking about the uh, early 1800s. Wow. Uh, her family came over in the 1710s. That area, I got the ship and everything. I can, I, I got a pedigree behind me. I can tell you each generation of my family. So, because they were farmers, is that how they got into keeping bees? Yeah, and they realized how important it was for their for their profit and their livelihood. You know, they had a lot of cherries, they had a lot of apples, and uh, they had the bees on the farm, and it was a nice source of income, but it was very essential in their livelihood. Well, we're going to talk about that word essential in just a few minutes. When we hear that 48% of bee colonies were lost last year, that sounds dire. Is it? Now, how would you describe the status of honeybees? And I'll, you know, talk broadly in this country. Well, the commercial guy, I'm, I'm a small commercial operator. I run 300 colonies. Um, my father passed away nine years ago. And before that, we were construction and we had 200 hives as a hobby. He got bees when he was an FFA, but my mother's family had them before that. And... Um, so when he passed away, I had a choice. Do I want to continue putting shingles on a roof, and uh, or do I want to play with honeybees? Because when I'm playing with a honeybee hive, I forget about the world. I'm just concentrating on that small organism and how they get along and how I can make them thrive. Uh, he learned from his FFA teacher. It took as much time to feed a mule as it did a racehorse. So he wanted to do his absolute best, whether it was construction or beekeeping. So my philosophy on beekeeping, I want my hives to be very gentle and very productive. And uh, due to all the problems we have, I have changed my business operation compared to what my father and I used to have. And uh, you talk about the losses. In the 70s, if we went into the high into the winter here in central PA with 100 colonies, we'll just use for example, and we, came, and we lost five colonies, the guys in the club would tell, oh, man, you had a bad year. Now, like you said, if you lose 50%, most people pat you on the back, you did pretty well. And if, if a dairyman or, you know, the 
beef producer would lose 50% of his livestock every year, they would be up in arms. So we don't have quite the government help that we should have, you know, because they brought these major pests in in the 90s that are killing our bees. And we have to continuously try to kill a bug on a bug that is infecting our uh, honeybees, and it's difficult. When you say they brought in this pest, what pest are you talking about? Who brought them in? Why? Well, we had a boycott on importing honeybees until, um, I think it was like the early 80s or the late 70s. He couldn't bring in any more bees in this country. And then the almond producers needed a much larger amount of bees, so they lifted it. So then they started being, bringing bees in from all over the world, and they brought these uh, two small mites in to begin with. And the first one was a tracheal mite. I remember one winter, my father and I had 100 colonies, and we went into the winter, and we came out with three. Ooh. We had to. The biggest thing is, yes, the loss of bees. We can replace them, but it's the equipment you lose, the wax and stuff like that. So we had a fight with them for a few years, and we got a genetic superior uh line of bees that were more immune to the the tracheal mites and then we got the varroa mite and that thing is just devastating now i'm working hard with genetics on trying to breed from hives that are more hygienically we'll call them clean they, they pick these little pests up and they kill them and they throw them out the door they don't accept them other other breeds are not um they, they just overwhelm a colony and we've used in the last 25 years or so, we've used many many different ways of trying to uh, combat these. Synthetic chemicals, which I use them. I haven't used any synthetic chemicals since probably 2000 because that leaves traces in my wax, and I don't want that. So I only use organic, organic chemicals now. I use formic acid, and I use uh, oxalic acid. And oxalic is in carrots. It's, in root, it's actually made from rhubarb. So it's a natural thing, and it seems that pests... These varroa mites are more susceptible to the natural chemicals and they don't build up any resistance. But what hurts us in the bee business, everyone sees the bees are dying, so I want to help. So they want to get some bees. Do they want to take care of their livestock? Do they want to treat their livestock? No, they just want to raise mites to contaminate me. Because when you start getting weak, there's no honey coming in. My bees are going to come rob your bees out, and they're going to bring all your little mites back to me. And the mites are bad, but the 26 viruses that they have and produce is what really is devastating to our colonies. Mm. So my major thing now is, uh, besides rebuilding, I'm treating for mites all the time. And, uh, you know, it used to be we could put, my father and I, we could put bees out in the spring, put some supers on, come back in the fall, take off their honey. Now I'm looking at them every month. And I keep a journal, every hive, everything I do to it. I can show you for the last 20 years some of the hives every time I open them up. And uh, it's a lot of work. I mean, I've actually now moved to migrating my bees. I take them in late summer to New York where they can get a fall honey flow. And then I take them in January, February to South Carolina so they can get an early honey flow. Because honeybees don't produce a lot of offspring unless there's food coming in. So by moving them to South Carolina here in January, February, I'm starting spring. So I can bring them back here in April and May to one of my good friends over here at Strites Orchard. I've been pollinating over there for some 30 years. I can bring them back highs at full strength so I can get a lot of honey. The average person gets around 30 pounds of honey or so. I produce an average of 120 or more per colony. So when are your bees 
still in South Carolina right now? I just took 70 down last weekend. Okay. And you'll bring them back in April? April and May, yes. What happens during winter? Maybe I should ask this question two ways. Before all this started, before you had to take your colonies other places to kind of acclimate them to warmer weather, uh, what would happen during the winter? Well, here in central PA, and, and I also I move them up to New York where they get buried in the snow, they will consume honey. They don't hibernate. They're awake 24-7, and they're consuming honey, but at a very small rate. Like I have electronic scales under beehives, and they will eat about a half a pound of honey a day. But when they start producing offspring, they'll eat three to four pounds of honey a day. So you have to leave on in central PA, or if you're down south or a little further north, at least 60, 80 pounds of honey for them to consume during the wintertime, or they will starve to death. Mm. So other than the the parasite, the mite, uh, I mentioned uh, pesticides, climate change. What about pesticides and climate change? I, I don't deny that pesticides are a problem. But I am on some, I, I rent some bees to a gentleman in South Carolina, huge watermelon, cantaloupe, zucchini producer, and they use all kinds of stuff, and my bees thrive there. It's determining when to spray and when not to spray. I personally feel, versus the word climate change, the crop change. When I was a kid, we had so much more fields that were produced for hay and stuff here in central PA. Now all we got is corn and soybeans, and they're just green deserts. Uh, it used to be when I was a kid, my father and I would build a house. We'd plant the 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 yard with 25% clover. Well, Scott's turf builder, they determined that their stuff kills clover, so they called it a weed. Dandelion and clover are wonderful things for bees. They really help them. And by us eliminating them and just having a green desert doesn't help the honeybee at all. And, Gary, I understand you were beekeeper of the year? Yeah, I too, actually at the time, you know, I thought... Uh, yeah, yeah, okay, this is really neat. I deserve it or whatever. But really, once I was crowned beekeeper of the year, there's a lot of pride and you feel responsibility and stuff like that. I was I was given that honor because of my outreach I do to the community, uh, my helping start people, my um, being basically a, it's my livelihood. And, uh, you know, I do a lot of seminars at schools. I um, do a lot at the farm show. And just like this little presentation today, I'm trying to promote beekeeping so people uh, learn about bees. It was funny. When I was a little kid in school, I used to get ridiculed because my dad was a nut down the end of the street and had all these bees around the house. Now people think, oh, man, you're really cool. You got honeybees. <laughs> and then they said, how many times you get stung? And I said, today? Uh, you know. <laughs> yeah, you were telling me. Yeah. Yeah. There's not a part of your body where you haven't been stung? Nope. I've been stung under the. I tell you what really hurts is under the fingernails. Uh, I don't wear. I don't like to wear gloves, unless a hive is really upset. I, and maybe if they give me six or eight stings, I'll go get my gloves on. But if it's uh, you know just two or three, no big deal. But I can work thirty or forty hives and maybe only get a half a dozen stings or so. Oh, okay. It's not a bad day. <laughs> bad days when it's over fifty. Yeah, <laughs> you know you're just driving a lot of people crazy but right now. One here thing I, I like to point out: when you do get stung by a honeybee, they leave their stinger in you, and if you pull it out, you inject all the venom in you. As a poison sac, what pumps away. So you take your fingernail and quick scrape it out, and you don't get the venom in okay. you. Okay. 
There, there, it, there is a real. We learned something. Emma, did you hear that? You learned that today, okay? All right. So let's get to one of the basic questions. Why are honeybees so important? Oh, uh, they well, eighty percent of the crop that is pollinated, honeybees do that. I mean, we would lose. Yeah, you can get away with some apples or some strawberries without the the honeybee, but the product of the the vegetable or the fruit is going to be much smaller. I was taught. I used to uh, do a gentleman did cucumbers. Now, right or wrong with this answer, he used to tell me he needs his flower pollinated thirteen times to have a straight cucumber, or else it'll be bent and things like that. I, I know in the apple business, they uh, you can get some wind, you can get a little bit from from uh, yellow jackets and the different domestic bees, but the honeybee has such large numbers, they do such a thorough job at pollinating, they're very beneficial for it. I mean, I, I think the human race would uh, survive without honeybees, but I don't want to eat bread every day. <laughs> Thirty-five. I read somewhere that thirty-five percent of what we eat in this country is pollinated by honeybees. I thought it was higher than that, but I'll let you go with thirty-five. Well, that but, comes from a beekeeping uh, website. Yeah. <laughs> Don't believe everything you see on the internet. <laughs> I should have learned that a long time yeah. ago. Uh, but you know, are we in, in any danger? I mean, this really took people by surprise. Like, say, you know, I mentioned that uh, it was uh, the second biggest die-off last year. 2007 was really took a lot of people by surprise. I mean, there were people who were making some dire predictions that uh, honeybees someday would go extinct. I mean, we haven't gotten to that point yet, have we? No, actually, we probably have more honeybees in the, in Pennsylvania today than we had 20 years ago. But we have so many more small-time beekeepers. And... Uh, we have a graph with our state. My size beekeeper is less than 1% of the beekeepers in PA. Uh, most of our beekeepers are, are uh, 6 to 25 colonies, a backyard beekeeper. They lose a tremendous fold. Now, this year, I, I wasn't as up to treating as I should have been because I had a daughter graduated from college. His son was in all these sports effects. So I had to play dad and a few things like that. And I, I think I'm approaching... The 25 to 30 percent loss, which in some aspects, some people think that's good. But, you know, one beehive loss is one too many for me. But I will rebound from that very quickly because I raise my own queens. I can split a colony and uh, I'll still produce 14 or 15 ton honey this coming year. You were talking about queens just a moment ago. And when I was looking on your website, OK, now I'm going to try to believe this now that I saw that there were certain bees that were for sale for other uh, beekeepers and yes. queens in particular. Is the queen the most important bee? Well, without her, you have no colony. A uh, honeybee cannot live with just the queen. She needs a, a task force with her, and she can't really thrive until she has around 10,000 bees in her colony. Um, but so many people there what I don't like is I think a lot of reason we have problems with die off and stuff like that. Everyone's getting a bee business. So some guy sitting down in Florida or Georgia or Texas, he's just producing queens. He don't care how they produce. They're alive when they leave. They can lay eggs. He's happy. I, myself, and my son, he started helping. He just turned 16, and he started helping when he was three. So I don't want my little kid getting his socks stapled to his legs. I want a gentle bee. 
I want to be it produces a lot of honey. I want to be resistant to mites. That's why I keep records. And what I tell people who want to buy bees from me is my name's on those bees. You know, I am not buying them from somebody else. I'm not a middleman. And if you don't buy them from me, they're my. I'm going to be using them. I'm not going to produce junk. So uh, that's my, my theory on everything I do, whether it was building a house or what. If it's not good enough for me, it's not good enough for you. And I think if more people felt they want to produce a superior creature, we wouldn't have quite the die-off we do have. I mean, people ask me what breed they are. I throw the breed scenario out the window when I'm trying to qualify whether you can be a, a breeder or not. And I have some superior hives this year that weren't treated last year that I think have great signs of resistance, resilience, we'll call it, against the mite. And uh, having a, maybe a slightly higher die-off this year than normal may be the best thing that ever happened to my business because I've got rid of the duds that I've been propping up all the time. And I'm guilty. I want to replace queens every year, and I've been a little lax at doing that. I'm just letting you roll with what you got. I have a buddy who started uh, five or six years ago, and uh, he's getting. I'm breeding my queens out of my best for him, and he's lost five out of uh, seventy-five, which is tremendous. And the bees look great. That's because I'm giving him my best every year instead of cycling it through my system. Well, this year I'm cycling it through my system, and. Uh, you know, the beekeeper is a farmer, so next year is always going to be better. Uh, what's being a, bee, a, a queen, I should say? What does a queen cost? Uh, they're easily going anywhere from 30 to $40 right now mm-hmm. for one bee. And how do you know a superior queen as opposed to one that maybe has, uh, you know, that the mite has uh, infiltrated? Well, you check how the hive has. You can do what they call mite wash. You put 30 there are 300 bees in a little uh, can of either alcohol or soapy water, and you can swirl them around, and mites drop off. If the colony has a high rate of that, that means that colony is not very uh, resistant against the mites. If they have a, a zero or one count, they are resistant. But then I can breed out of her, but the problem is they mate in the air with... I can't control who they mate with, but I am getting into artificial insemination now as well. But um, they'll mate with anywhere from a dozen to 80 different fellas and that's the only time they mate they don't they don't remate or they you know so if it's a cold damp day she's going to have a poor mating flight and then she's not going to have the semen that she stores in her body and she'll run out she'll become a poor queen they'll kill her so 70 to 80 the universe uh, there's an outfit in hawaii who uh dissected a bunch of queens and they found queens that mated with 80 82 and 83 different males. We used to say a dozen to 20, but we have seen that that's not true. It's, it's far more than that. Do they need to? Can one, can they mate with one? Well, no. Uh, the reason with the multiple, the queen has the ability to determine if she's laying a fertilized or unfertilized egg just by mixing the semen with the egg as she drops it into the cell. So a male honeybee has no father, just a grandfather and a mother. So if she only mates with one, that could be physically possible, but every one would be identical. I mean, if you mix with different different males, this one may be a little more protective, a little more aggressive. This one may be a better honey producer. So when you get all that uh, all added together, it makes a strong colony. There, you know, you could get one that is not very resistant to certain diseases, and the colony get wiped out just like that. 
but by the multiple matings, she has a multiple offspring who are resilient and and uh, for different things. Now, d- does the queen discern the strengths of her mate, or is it no. just haphazard? They fly up the further they, the higher they fly, and everything else, the uh, more superior male it would take to get to her. Huh. We have only a minute left, and this has just been so fascinating. So what does the future look like for honeybees? And by the way, I was talking about getting stung by yellow jackets earlier, and you corrected me that the yellow jacket is not a bee. That's right. It's a Uh, wasp family. (laughs) So in about 30 seconds, what do you see for the future? Uh, I think it's it's good. I mean, uh, maybe I'm too much of a dumb Dutchman. I'm going to thrive to do my better and best next year versus this year. And I, I think it looks good. Mm. I mean, you have to be intelligent enough to know where to place your bees to be a good beekeeper. Gary Carnes is the president of the Capital Area Beekeepers Association. I think we have some beekeeping royalty here today with eight generations and the ninth on the way. Gary, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you very much, Scott. Coming up on the second half of the Spark Weekly. A memoir by a woman who realizes she's in love with her best friend, another woman, and had been for 20 years. You're listening to The Spark Weekly. I'm Scott Lamar. Welcome back to The Spark Weekly. I'm Marquise Lupton. Suzette Mullen released a new book this past week about coming out later in life. It's a memoir where Suzette shares her empowering midlife coming out story and it's titled The Only Way Through is Out. And today on The Spark, I speak with Suzette about the story behind her memoir and the courage it took to come out to her husband and children. Check it out. Hello, Suzette. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I, I want a little bit of your energy, though. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hear that a lot. I, um, I, I enjoy doing this. I love uh, uh, speaking with people. I'm a naturally nosy person. Um, so I, I just look forward to speaking, speaking to folks and, and learning more about them. So uh, that, that's where the energy comes from. It's, it, it is pure excitement. Um, so um, for, for yourself, uh, what, what made you want to uh, write this book? Mm, That's a good question. And some days I wonder that. Um, (laughs) But in all all seriousness, um, I I wrote The Only Way Through is Out, which is a memoir, um, first for myself to understand the past. I think that's very common for memoir writers. We have an experience that was profound, and we use writing to unpack it and try to connect the dots in our in our past. So first, it was for myself. And as I wrote, I became more and more convinced that I had a story that would matter to other people, mm-hmm. um, particularly uh, people in the LGBTQ plus community. And also, really, I wrote the book for every human who is longing to live more authentically, but maybe is afraid of the cost of of making a change in their life. Now, um, um, for you and your life, what pivotal moment uh, prompted you to reevaluate your choices? 
Oh boy. Well, to get to get the full story, you'll have to read the book, but <laughs> I'll give you I'll give you and the listeners a little a little bit of preview. Um I was at midlife. Um I have two sons and my younger son was just going off to college. I was married um to a man at the time. We had a long-term solid marriage and we were embarking on a new chapter. Um our empty nest chapter and Spoiler alert, there were some surprises that emerged in that chapter. Um, I made the decision that I was ready to make a professional pivot. Um, I had been a lawyer in the previous life and a stay-at-home mom, a community volunteer, and a social justice advocate. And in this next empty next nest chapter, I decided to go all in with writing and mm. editing. And I began working on actually a different book. It was a memoir about my professional journey. And in the course of writing that first story, a different story emerged, um, a story that felt scary and dangerous. And in the book, I call it the unspeakable. Mm. And it was a story about um, a long-term very intense friendship I had with a female friend. And through the writing process, I started to understand that relationship differently. And that's really what sets in motion the story um, that I tell in The Only Way Through is Out. So um, uh, how do you navigate the uh, tension between societal expectations um, and your own desires for authenticity? Oh, boy. Well, it wasn't easy. Let me put it that way. Mm. Um, I really, really struggled. Um, I, I first had to unpack, you know, decades of denial and try to understand why, how I had gotten to this place that I had gotten to um, at midlife and not fully owning my my sexual identity and. Um, Obviously, part of that it was societal expectations. Part of it was at the time I grew up in having no uh, role models. I mm. I went to high school in the seventies, and um, I know there were gay people in my high school and gay teachers, but there was no one who was out, um, mm. and it just wasn't really on my radar. Um, so there was first all the unpacking of of what had led me to this place. And then the, the struggle to decide what, if anything, to do about it. Um, I, I had a, I had a very nice life. I was comfortable. I was, I had a loving and kind husband. I had, you know, the cliche, but I pretty much had the American dream. Mm -hmm. And um, I was, I was someone who was raised to play it safe. Um, I was risk averse. I was a rule follower, all of those things, which I think is part of what led me to where I was. And this kind of, you know, thunderbolt in the middle of my empty, the, well, the start of my emptiness chapter really just threw me, um, it threw me into a really, really difficult situation. And so there was that question, first of all, what is really true for me, then what do I do about it? And is it, do I have the right to disrupt and blow up some people might say other people's lives? And I wrestled with that. I really wanted to do the right thing. And it wasn't just, 
I wasn't just going to be me that was impacted by the decision. Mm. Now, uh, now, in your book, um, um, can you discuss the significance of this um, internal conflict between playing it safe and embracing your true self? Yeah, well, I mean, I in the book, I um, I personify my inner voice and I call it the voice. And it's kind of this guiding this guiding light to this guiding voice throughout throughout the book. And one of the things that I I came to understand is that the inner voice really is is your truth and it is leading you to um it doesn't tend to lead you to safe choices. Mm. Um I don't want to make a blanket statement that it never does, but in my experience, um the the voices that keep you in in your in in the known in the safety tend to be voices that are coming from a different place coming from fear and the inner voice that's really your truth is that voice that's leading you to yourself but to get there um requires requires courage it requires risk taking it requires leaving a life that i as I said before, that it was comfortable, that I knew that all the people in my life thought, you know, why would she possibly leave this life? And to make that leap into an unknown future, um, you know, really to make a life, a leap into a life that I'd only been living in my head. It was it was a hard time. Let me put it that way. <laughs> so um, it, it, um, in your book, we um, we we visit and we revisit um, this fear. So uh, uh, what what role does a fear play in your journey um, towards this self-discovery and acceptance? Yeah, fear. Fear was was very big um, in in my life. I um, which I don't think I even realized until I was was on this journey. Um, I didn't want to, I was afraid of disappointing mm. people. I was afraid of causing people pain. I was frankly terrified of making a mistake. Um, this this decision to leave the life that I had established and built for 30 plus years wasn't, it wasn't obviously a decision that you take you make lightly. Mm -hmm. And um, it was the kind of decision there was really no point of return. It was the proverbial jumping off the cliff. And um, so I was I was terrified of making a mistake. And boy, this would have been a I, I don't know if we can I'll try to use clean language here. <laughs> it would have been quite a mistake. Let's just put it, let's just put it that way. And um so there was there was all of that. And, you know, to be honest, Marquise, in the when I was wrestling with the decision of what to do once I understood my true sexual identity, I wasn't really afraid of, you know, living in the world as an LGBTQ plus person because I didn't really even know what that meant. Mm -hmm. um, it um, I. I did grow up and I was pretty much surrounded by, I grew up in a progressive family, community, all of the things. So I wasn't dealing with overt homophobia or any of that. And 
so that wasn't and that wasn't a fear in the beginning. I, mm. It was really, I was just ignorant. I really did not understand what it would be like to um, to step into that identity and live as a queer person in the world. Now, um, uh, you you mentioned that uh, you were a, a risk-averted type person, uh, that you tried mm-hmm. to um, avoid risk. So uh, what are some of the risks uh, you faced in pursuing uh, this life that aligns with your authentic self? Yeah, well, um, there were there, there were a lot. Um, I I. I risked losing friends. I mm. risked losing family members. Um, I risked losing my the identity that I had I had built up for my entire adult life. Um, I risked um, I risked some financial security. Um, mm. I I think the biggest risk was I really I had had a partner my now ex-husband, since I was 22. And um, we married at 25. And my entire adult life, I had been in this partnership. And um, the part of the risk was losing the security of that partnership in, mm. in, all the, in all the ways that it provided that security for me. And stepping into a life as a single person um, who hadn't really done single personhood since she was in her early 20s. And doing that in your mid-50s is very, very different. Mm. Suzette, when does this come out? It is. is it's about to be born. Um, the official uh, release date is next Tuesday, February 13th, although some people are starting to get their books already. Um, <laughs> A a certain bookseller that starts with a capital A has been shipping out the books. <laughs> and and that that was going to be my next question. Uh where can uh folks po- purchase it? Uh but uh but if you it, well, go ahead, please. Yeah, I, I will say obviously the book can be purchased anywhere. Um and I am a big, big proponent and believer of supporting our independent bookstores. Mm. And so for Anyone who's listening, please support your independent bookstores. The um, the bookstore in Lancaster that is um, sponsoring my launch next week is Pocket Books, and oh, wow. um, I would love to um, send people to the Pocket Books website. All right, all right. So um, uh, let's get uh, back back to your um, memoir here. So um, how does your story resonate with others uh, who may be struggling with their own identity and sense of belonging? Yeah. So that's of course, as a writer, that's that's what we that's what we hope to do. That's really why we write. We want to connect with readers. We want to impact readers and. One of the things that has been a great joy already from some of the advanced readers and then some of the people who got their copies very early, I've been getting messages from from people and just saying, you know, your story is my story. Mm. Um, I um, uh, my story is different and I connected with a lot in your story. I think that the um, there's there's a lot of universal experiences in my story that go well beyond the experience of somebody who may be 
questioning their sexuality later in life. I mean, clearly for those readers, there's a lot to connect with in my story. But for other readers, I think it is this, um, the, the universal theme of of the fear of leaving a safe, a com comfortable life for something else, the fear of making a change, and but and the longing, the knowing that there's there's something else out there for them, and really, I think the battle of the voices inside our head. Um, that's a big part of what I share in the book, and we all have those voices in our head. And we ask ourselves, you know, which is the voice I should be listening to? Um, so I'm hearing from readers already that those are the types of things that they're connecting with in my story. And and for the person at home uh, that may be dealing with a similar situation or a adjacent situation, um, what would you say to them right now? Yeah, so... Whatever your situation is that you're feeling stuck or in that messy middle or wrestling with, you know, do I stay or do I go? Do I go after whatever it is that you, you're longing for in your life? I have, I have two, three pieces of advice. One is find your people. Um, mm. This is not a journey to do on your own. Um, I speak in the in the only way through is out about an online uh, support group of other other women who were questioning their sexuality um, later in life, and they really were a lifeline for me. So find your people, whether you find them online or in person, but don't try to do this journey alone. Mm. And the second part is listen. Be still and listen to yourself. Um, you need other people for sure, but ultimately you need to listen to what's inside yourself. There will be lots of other voices telling you what to do and other people that will have lots of opinions. And at the end of the day, you are the only person who can answer this question for yourself. You're the only person who knows what's true for yourself. And the third little piece of advice I would give is that if possible, and if it feels appropriate for you, find a find a good therapist. Um, mm. I and and if you're if you're um, in a situation that like I was in, where I was wrestling with what to do about this revelation about my sexual identity, ideally find a, a therapist who is either queer or is absolutely a strong ally. Mm. Now, um, uh, some of the um, uh, experiences that you uh, highlight in in the book uh, uh, highlight the complexities of uh, love, uh, friendship, and and identity. Uh, how how do all of these tie in with one's identity? Yeah, well, I think that um, like all I, I can only speak to my experience, but I'm guessing that this is not uncommon. Mm. Um, women. Women very often have very intimate, intense friendships, and mm. they can be straight women who have those very intimate, intense friendships. And um, I think that that part of my story was, and part of the reason I was in so much denial as long as I was, is that there was there was an acceptability of of having 
an intense female friendship. Um, that didn't necessarily mean that it was romantic or or sexual. And so I think those there there the lines are very blurred, um, at least in my experience. Um, and does that answer your question? Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, yes, indeed. Okay. Yes, indeed. I, I I actually did not want to interject. Uh, um, I, I had another question, but I was I was just going to let you go. Uh, but um, but uh, let's um, let me ask this. Um, uh, what lessons can the readers learn from your journey about the importance of self self acceptance and and self love? Yeah. Well, I hope that ultimately my readers will learn. A, a number of things or will feel and experience a number of things. I hope that they will feel inspired and empowered to step into their own authenticity, whatever that looks like for them, um, that they will find the courage to act on what they're hearing inside themselves. And if they are if they are people of a certain age, um, I hope they will feel that my story will will give them hope that it really isn't too late for them. I mean, I, I firmly believe that it is never too late to live authentically. It's never too late to write a new story for yourself. It's never too late to live out loud. And I guess the final exclamation point I would put on this is there is a cost to authenticity. I mm. mean, leaving leaving what you knew before unless it was a terrible situation which mine was not there there's there's a cost there's pain involved there's it, it is not a you know it's not just a a jump to the other side and everything is joyful but for me the message i want to share is that the cost is worth it and there is joy on the other side. There is joy on the other side of the struggle. There is a cost to authenticity. That put a cold chill, a good cold chill down my spine because that is that that is true. Um, Suzette, I, I have uh, one more question here before we um, uh, head out. In what ways uh, does your journey embody the universal quest for authenticity and fulfillment? Well, I mean, my particular context was coming to terms with my my sexual identity at midlife, but I think that what's clear to me is that we all we're we're all longing to be fully alive. We're all longing to feel as if we're living the life we were intended to live, um, whatever that looks like for us. And so for anyone who is feeling lost in their life um, and feeling that they aren't living fully, I hope that they will find some inspiration and encouragement and hope for my story. Suzette, I want to thank you for joining us on The Spark. This has been a honor. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Marquise. And I want to thank you for joining us on The Spark Weekly today. And on behalf of Scott Lamar and myself, Marquise Lupton, we want to wish you a safe and happy Sunday and a better week.